Hi, um, good evening. I'd like to welcome you. My name is Kathleen Neal, and I'd like to welcome you to Poetry and Conversation. This is an ongoing series of readings and conversations with poets here at the Pratt. We're, we're very happy that you joined us tonight, and you, we hope you will also join us on February 12th to hear poets Chris Mason and Adam Robinson. February also features a series of poetry workshops taught by Clorinda Harris, followed by a reading on March 5th with Clorinda Harris and poet Karen Gartha. Other future events are a poetry contest by, sponsored by the Little Patuxent Review with a deadline of February 8th. And details of this contest can be found on the Pratt Library website. But for now tonight, which is very special and exciting, as we welcome Sue Ellen Thompson and Kathleen Helen. And here's the plan for tonight. First, I'm going to introduce both poets. Then each poet will read for about approximately 20 minutes or so. And then that will be followed by a short Q&A. So as you're listening, if you think of some questions you'd like to ask, anything that's prompted by the poetry, um, just keep it in mind because we will have that. And then followed by a brief reading to close the evening by each poet. I'm going to start with, um, now who's going to read first, Kathleen or... Kathleen, you're going to, oh, no, I'm going to introduce you first, but I was kind of trying to think about the, um, okay, I'm going to start with um, Sue Ellen, since Kathleen will read first. Um, Sue Ellen Thompson is the author of four books of poetry, most recently The Golden Hour, and the editor of the Autumn House Anthology of Contemporary American Poetry. In 2010, she received the Maryland Author Award given to a poet every four years by the Maryland Library Association. Ms. Thompson has taught at many universities, among them Middlebury, Wesleyan, Binghamton University, and the University of Delaware, as well as the Writers' Center in Bethesda and Annapolis, and at the Academy Art Museum in Easton. Her work has been included in the Best American Poetry Series, read on National Public Radio by Garrison Keillor, and featured in U.S. Poet Laureate Ted Kuzer's nationally syndicated newspaper column. Miss Thompson's language moves the reader musically through her poems with metrical precision and effervescence of motion that catches us off guard with unexpected images rooted in the physical world. The images of a blanket as earth sifted down and a magnolia that dies because it is believed strangled enlightens and reveals the tension that exists in life and love between the desire for leaning in, to hold, comfort, and treasure what we possess, and the need for unleashing what can't be held in relationships both familial and otherwise. Kathleen Helen is a poet and the author of Umberto's Night and The Girl Who Loved Mothra. Her poems are widely published and have been featured on WYPR's The Signal. Awards include the Gene Feldman Poetry Prize from Washington Writers Publishing House, as well as poetry prizes from the Howe Journal, the Washington Square Review, the Thomas Merton Institute, and the Appalachian Writers Association. Her work has earned individual artist grants from the Baltimore Office of Promotion and the Arts and the Maryland State Arts Council. She is senior editor for the Baltimore Review and teaches creative writing at Coppin State University. Ms. Helen's poems push and pull with forcefully direct but rich language 
that contrasts images of the world of urban landscapes where for many the lesson is booked or bagged or dumped, leaving rim spinning with that of the natural world where the slender fingers of the daffodil signal their come hither. Always examining which image or world is more true or less painful, as even a bonsai tree reminds what a thing in nature can become deprived of light. These poems mourn for the loss of seeds set aloft, for trees and seasons unedened, and a world where even love is judged as sin. I'd like to welcome Kathleen Helen. She will read first. And Thank you very much, Kathleen, and thank you, Shailene. Um, I, w- I want to, you know, before I read, I do want to thank all of you for coming out tonight. It was so icky out there. That I'm, so <laughs> I'm so grateful that you braved this, you know, storm and this bad weather to come and hear poetry, which says a lot about poetry, you know, that it has that kind of connection to folks. And I want to thank Kathleen for that lovely introduction and Shailene, and of course, Judy Cooper. And uh, this library, for all it's done for literacy in this region and also for literature and for poets like myself, thank you so very much for everything you've done. Um, It's interesting because you read lines from some of the poems I'm going to read tonight, so we understand they'll hear it again. Um, I... Umberto's Night is a collection that, that that rides kind of to parallel tracks. The, the, and this is this idea of the simulacra, this idea that Umberto Eco, which is in the epigraph to the book, expresses that there's this environment that we live in or we think we live in, and over top of that environment is laid other environments, sort of manufactured environments. And I think this idea came to me even as a child. I was... Um, I don't know if it's an imagined reality or if it's something I actually remembered from when I was a child. But I was born in, in Japan, and I, I, I have this sense of remembering, you know, beautiful gardens, landscape gardens, and, and ponds with flashes of orange koi. And, and I don't know if I really remember that or if that's something that I imagine that I've remembered. When I was five years old, I came to this country, and I moved very rapidly, sort of from one environment to another environment. And my family moved to western Pennsylvania, and we were plunked down into the Steel Mill Valley along the Monongahela River, and it was as if I had been dropped on Mars. The place was sooty, dirty, smelly, stinky sulfur smell in the air from the steel mills. I remember going to school, and I went to Catholic school, and my little white collar of my blouse, every time I came home, was like encrusted with black soot. And I kept running away from home. My mother says that when I was a kid, they would have to watch me all the time because I would just like bolt. I would run. And I think I was trying so hard to go back to get out, 
to find that sort of curtain. It was as if that curtain could be drawn and I could go back to this other environment that was clean and pure and, and wondrous. And so that whole idea of realities on top of realities is something that just runs through this collection. Um, the first poem I'm going, going to read is about that experience in the Mon Valley, and the poem is called The Fire Sermon, Fallensby Coke Plant. And Fire Sermon you know, is, is a reference to the Buddha, the great Fire Sermon, and his meditation on suffering, and how suffering is really derived from the senses. And Fallensby is a little town, that rests along the Monongahela River, and it's where Wheeling Pittsburgh Steel had its huge steelmaking plant. There was a zinc factory there as well, and uh, Coke, of course, it's not that Coke, the one everybody likes. It's the Coke that is the sort of fuel that that runs these um, steelmaking mills. Uh, it's a product derived from coal. So the poem is called "The Fire Sermon." Fallensby Coke Plant. A rotten egg is cracked against the sky. Nothing you can see beyond the scrim of smoke, the glow of furnaces, the choke. Can't tell the chug of the machinery from barges pushing in another load of coke. No delight in things tonight. The swimming pool, the motorboat, the camper hitched out back. No relief. Not even in the shallow water lapping at the edge of some belief. The river sweats its tar into baptism. Listen. Dead branches In the current shift, feel the waves ascend, feel the catfish breathe. I came to Pennsylvania several years after probably one of the most horrific air pollution incidents in the United States. In 1948 in Donora, which was just down the road from us, 20 people dropped dead on the streets from air pollution. 800 animals died, and 1,600 people were sickened. The New York Times several years later said that it was the worst air pollution disaster in this country. And this idea of, you know, the natural landscape being compromised, corrupted by, you know, this manufactured reality, it's not just the environment, it's the people, too. Um... Uh, and, and you'd think that after 1948, we'd learn our lesson, you know, well, we would just stop this stuff. But I just read in the paper in 2010, this is a staggering figure, 8,600 people in China died prematurely because of air pollution, various pollutions in China. And this was coming out of the major cities, of, four major cities of China, Beijing and Shanghai among them. So you'd think we'd learn but we haven't really learned um, that this stuff kills us. The poem is called Slag. 
And slag is one of those byproducts, again, of the smelting of the ore in the, in the steel making. And slag is a waste product. And the poem is called Slag. Did we think the red horizon was too beautiful? Marked its brilliance as forgiveness. Pale waste of it, trucked off and dumped into the mountains of refuse, like mountains of the moon where nothing grew. A cratered landscape dimming. What of stink, the lethal plume, the sulfurous river running from the furnaces that loomed, the metals we set free. We married steel-toe boots, loved the sirens that seduced us, the change of shift that wooed us to drowning in the gases chugged like beers. What fills us up when lungs collapse? What face stares back in skin like rash, discolored from the heat? Who moves inside the legs that drag, the back a broken shovel? This idea of of two realities hit me one day so vividly. I was getting on a train going from Baltimore to D.C., and as soon as I got into that train, I had a feeling that I just... Did you ever experience it? you feel like you've walked into a different reality and that the reality inside that enclosed space is somehow different than what's outside? It's like these two parallel universes are running simultaneously together. And I had this feeling, and and also when I was on the train, I thought of Ezra Pound, you know, that really teeny tiny poem that everybody talks about as the imagistic poem, the Innestation of the Metro. So I thought I'd read that first. It's teen, and then as a prelude to my own poem. So Innestation of the Metro by Ezra Pound. The apparition of these faces in a crowd petals on a wet black bough. My poem is called From the Metro. We are skimming landscapes, a lap of magazines, the city quitting under hunched shoulders, its streets implied by signs, the grid. Bare trees hide nothing, Detritus of foam and fuel and wrappers, shrouds of plastic in the cables, carcasses of steel. We are going nowhere. Traffic fences flight. The right of exit lost to left of reason. We tore the last occasion of the rain, a forest dreaming winter. I press my hand to where a sparrow might have crashed into what had seemed transparency. Doors are suddenly flung open, a rush. I do not recognize my own reflection. Every day I boot up my computer, and I don't know where I go. I just go into that thing. 
you know, link after link after link, and it kind of swallows me up. And this reality is, is you know, I don't even know what it is. I, I mean, is it a part of me? Has this thing become a part of me? Am I the machine? Is the machine? I don't know. I wrote this poem about that experience of getting lost in this other world that just takes you away. You know, you're there for hours and you don't even know how long you've been there. The poem is called Fear, Desire, Feathers That Fly. The slender fingers of the daffodil signal their come hither. The rolling green, the mountains vaguely blue, and beckoning a mythic distance unperturbed by weather. The screen is a pretense of landscape, words, numbers keyed in reflex realities, a daily feed of systems that summon me to presence in the network. Sometimes, in a clear and present mind, I elope into the gardens of my own imagination, where whimsy ferns, where screen gives way to branches of a pine that stairway to the blue and clouds departing, sweep aside the wooing of the thing inside the thing downloading. The air, though chill, sparkles. Tiger lilies deepen into dreams. So many evergreens agree on shade. One gnarled, twisted, boneside by the canopy and wind reminds me what a thing in nature can become. Deprived of light, the mad love of the trees, a bird, death-throated, sings. Sometimes I try to recreate this natural environment, you know, to sort of, and I did that especially when I lived in northeast Baltimore. I had this little postage stamp of a, a yard in the back, and boy, I'll tell you, I just like put all my energy there. I let it grow wild, just wild. The hibiscus was like all over the place, Every, you know, everything, weeds. I just, come on, you know, and every once in a while, my landlord would send somebody over and he would just cut everything down. And it infuriated me because my little, you know, bower was gone. So I wrote this poem for my landlord and this guy that he sent. It's called Sleep of Stones. He bore himself a god in the rumbling that awakened a laddered truck at the gate, a buried bower at the fence where he entered, sent by the landlord to tenant the land I rented. Ten years I'd tended its wildness, loved its toothed margins of leaf, its thorn. His mower began its first rite. The daisies spoiled the buttercups spilled, the wise dandelions imploded. The ivory, stripped of its love of brick, tumbled rope after rope. I flamed to it, 
fell out of dream into seasons unedened, hastened to grief, I pleaded for seeds set aloft for trees. The land on which you lie shall be like dust, he quoted, tasked with his executions. And behold, he retreated into summer's gasoline, into sleep without dreams, a time of weeping. You know, I don't want to come off as this like green, green person because I think it's a struggle. I want to buy that plastic big pen and I want to throw it away when it's empty. You know, I'm, I, and I'm torn every day. You know, it's like every day is a choice. Do I recycle this or do I, you know, blah, you know what, what do you do? And, and your life is always like, I think, like a series of those choices where you choose to either be a good person or you just say, oh, what the hell? You know, like, you know, whatever I do doesn't make any difference, right? You, you know what I'm saying? And so I wrote this poem. It's called Once in a Yellow Wood. And I was trying to, like, sort of channel Robert Frost. You know, the two roads diverged, and sorry I couldn't travel both. Um, but this poem is about, you know, going down that one path, and sometimes it might not be the right one. So it's called Once in a Yellow Wood. The double yellow swam beneath the wake of tractor trailers. The gray mimicked rain. Headlights wrestled fog. It was the morning of a very bad decision. I could say I had it coming. I could say I was unhappy. A girl with a grudge, an intuition. The sodden leaves spoke up. They said I'd gone too far to find the road to take me back. Oh, foot to the clutch, wheels in the sky, each intersecting a wheel. I rode the rock face till I dropped, slid into the dosy dough of angels. The grim one on the right was spitting plug, the other hobnail clogging. I was small inside calamities, collision when the mountains opened up. I kicked through the crystal windshield, a stunt like Houdini's, my shoulder with wing flighted, the day mimicked light, a whiff before the explosion. And I'm going to end this segment with a poem I started um, in 2005. It was during the Katrina stuff. And, you know, it was, it was such a reminder to me that, you know, everything has consequence, all this stuff, and, and we're seeing it more and more. The consequences are with us tonight, perhaps, right? It's almost 70 degrees tonight, and it's January. So the poem is called Seasonal. Enough, I said, then a surge, a breach in the startled plywood, an army impeached, the bodies in sheets, quarantines, the tunnel to managed quarters. The summer that followed was heat, the media in helicopters thinly thoraxed, then birds and both ears disappeared. Only the attitude rain. A room with
without doors, a wailing within people like rain, an ice flow of feeling that lengthened as days in the solstice shortened. Then Zoloft, remote. I couldn't sleep. I taped all the nature shows scripted. I turned down my children in sleep. I cried in the manner of sleeves. I scrolled through the cancellations. No school today, activities delayed, no dogs but strays, no squirrels on the roof where I signaled. Into winter and spring, no fractals emerging. Then, faint lung of pink, a petal unpearling. Then, grass, a kernel of yellow things I forgot. Thank you. Thank you, Shailene. It's taken a while to bring this off, but it's really nice to be here. I've never, you know, I've only lived in Maryland for six years. I've never been in this library. I had no idea what a magnificent building it is. It's really incredible. Tonight I'll be reading primarily from my fourth book, which is uh, The Golden Hour, and then at the end I'll throw in a couple of poems from a new manuscript which will be out in 2014. I will open with a sonnet some of you might have heard Garrison Keillor read just before Christmas. It's called Leaning In. Sometimes, in the middle of a crowded store on a Saturday afternoon, my husband will rest his hand on my neck, or on the soft flesh belted at my waist and pull me to him. I understand his question. Why are we so fortunate when all around us friends are falling prey to divorce and illness? It seems intemperate to celebrate in a more conspicuous way, so we just stand there, leaning into one another, until that moment of sheer blessedness dissolves, and our skin which has been touching, cools and relents, settling back into our separate skeletons as we head toward housewares to resume our errands. The Golden Hour is a book about, among other things, marriage. And I'm going to read a few poems about um, my parents' marriage, which ended in, with my mother's death in 2002, just a few months shy of their 60th anniversary. Um, my father, who was a B-24 pilot in World War II, was taken prisoner by the Germans and was actually apart from my mother for their first two wedding anniversaries. Another sonnet, Prisoner of War. He pried, a lo- he pried loose boards from the walls and floor to burn in the barracks stove when the chips of coal ran out. His only clothing was the uniform he was shot down in, and the Baltic cold was unrelenting. They killed his bombardier when, without thinking, he ran out to catch a fly ball and hit the wire. 
the day they expanded the prison compound to make room for newcomers, my father saw several yards of untrampled earth to the south. He tore out handfuls of fresh, raw onion grass and stuffed it in his mouth. Doing swell, his letters to my mother said. Don't worry your pretty little head. Uh, My parents lived in New Hampshire, just north of Concord, the capital city. And um, my father loved to fish on the Merrimack River. There was an airport not far away in Manchester, and from time to time they would have those air shows where um, the old vintage planes would come to visit, including occasionally a B-24. Fishing on the Merrimack. My father sees a B-24. Dozing and drifting slowly toward Boscawin in his battered ten-foot alumacraft, he hears the distant rumble of the flying boxcar he and his crew named Sacktime Sal for the hours of blissful rest they coveted. They flew her over Sicily and bombed the German base at Trieste before bailing out fifty years ago. Now the blunt nose and twin tail stabilizers emerge from a low-hanging cloud, its slow propellers pummeling the air. Following the river from the air show south, it labors in the shadow of the shadow cast over my father and his frail craft. Someone's having fun. (laughs) Um, one of my earliest childhood memories is lying in bed and listening to my parents um, argue over wallpaper books. They uh, learned how to wallpaper themselves, a skill they passed on to me. Very useful. But they often disagreed about how much time should elapse between wallpaperings. You know, my father thought 30 years seemed reasonable. My mother was more on a three- to six-month timetable, hence the arguments. Wallpapering. My parents argued over wallpaper. Would stripes make the room look larger? He would measure, cut, and paste. She'd swipe the flaws out with her brush. Once it was properly hung, doubt would set in. Would the floral have been a better choice? Then it would grow until she was certain it had to go. Divorce terrified me as a child. I didn't know what led to it, but I had my suspicions. The stripes came down, up went the flowers. Eventually, it became my definition of marriage. Bad choices, arguments whose victor's time refused to tell, but everything done together and done well. Uh, wallpaper wasn't the only thing my parents argued about, although I would, I would describe their marriage as a very happy one. Um, I'll read this next poem because it was alluded to uh, in the blog and in, in the introduction. It's about that moment when we cease being our parents' children and start doing for them the things they used to do for us when we were little. The blue blanket. 
Toward the end, my father argued with my mother over everything. He wanted her to eat again. He wanted her to take her medicine. He wanted her to live. He argued with her in their bed at nap time. He was cold, he said, tugging at the blanket tangled in my mother's wasted limbs. From the hall outside their room, I listened as love, caught and fettered, howled at its captors, gnawing at its own flesh in its frenzy to escape. Then I entered without knocking, freed the blanket trapped between my mother's knees, and shook it out once, high above their body's cursive. It floated for a moment, blue as the Italian sky into which my father flew his bombs in 1943, blue as the hat I bought her for the winter she would never live to see. My father's agitation eased, My mother smiled up at me, her face loosened with gratitude as the blanket sifted down on them like earth. Um, I rarely read the title poem of this book. I don't know why. It, It tries to weave together those two very closely related experiences, caring for your own child, Uh, as an infant and and caring for a dying parent who becomes day by day more childlike. The Golden Hour. Those final weeks, there was an hour each afternoon when stillness would conspire with the autumn light. They would embrace my mother in her sickbed and my father with his books spread-eagled on his chest beside her, dozing. I'd stand outside their bedroom door and know that nothing bad would happen for an hour, that I could leave the house, return to find the cat still curled between the shapes that were my parents, and the same staccato puffs of air escaping from my mother's lips. I'd walk the fields behind their house, the endless avenues of dry golden corn stalks leading nowhere and away and think of those first few weeks at home with my infant daughter, how the world I'd known before, the world of books and men and dinner parties, had abandoned me. The phone calls from my friends at work dropped off, and what remained of my life gazed at me with slate-blue eyes. Once, after nursing, she fell into a sleep so bottomless, the cell door opened briefly, and I thought of slipping out but her hold on me was already too fierce. Pausing midfield, I'd turn instinctively back toward that slowly stirring maelstrom of grief. My mother would awaken to the sound of a November wind quickening around the corners of the house and the sun dropping into its coin box. Sometimes her eyes would flutter briefly, and I'd remember why I kept that child so close to me for years and how relinquishing her came hard. The hour would end. I'd put my mother's arms around my neck and lift her to the commode. I'd rent a Catherine Hepburn video and reheat leftovers. If it was cold, I'd swaddle her in afghans on the sofa. Okay, I'm going to shift gears here and just read a couple of poems um, about, about my daughter, who was very close to both of my parents, but 
became especially so to my father in the nine and a half years he lived after my mother died. This is a sonnet. Vegan. My daughter hauls her sacks of beans and vegetables in from the car and begins to chop. My father, who has had enough caffeine, makes himself a Manhattan on the rocks. It's Sunday, his night for sausage and eggs, hers for stir-fried lentils, rice, and kale. Watching her cook eases his fatigue and loneliness. Later, she'll trim his toenails. He no longer has an appetite for anything beyond this evening ritual, but he'll fry himself an egg tonight and eat dinner with his granddaughter. For a widower, there is no greater comfort in the world than his girls and his girls' girls. Um, Those of you who have ever dropped a child off at college might identify with this next poem. Um, As I recall, after helping my daughter move into two dormitory rooms and then an apartment, I decided, I am too old for this. This is really work. She has got to make some friends who are strong and can do this. Helping my daughter move into her first apartment. This is all I am to her now, a pair of legs in running shoes, two arms strung with braided wire. She heaves a carton sagging with CDs at me, and I accept it gladly, lifting with my legs, not bending over, raising each foot high enough to clear the step. Fortunate to be of any use to her at all, I wrestle, stooped and single-handed, with her mattress in the stairwell, saying nothing as it pins me, sweating, to the wall. Vacuum cleaner, spiny cactus, Five-pound sacks of rice and lentils slumped against my heart, up one flight of stairs and then another, down again with nothing in my arms. Okay, I will um, close with just a few poems from this new manuscript. It's really about the relationship between my daughter, who is transgender, and her very conservative and ancient grandfather. I won't go into a lot of detail about it. I'll just read you a few, give you the idea. At the kitchen window. Ignoring the tattoos, the piercings, the triangle of hair shaved off geometrically above each ear, the elastic waistband of men's underwear visible above her belt, which cut across her rear the way my mother's tape measure did when I was her age and took my measurements. My father always welcomed visits from my daughter, which were more frequent than her visits home. She'd sit with him on the porch in the evenings, praising his tomatoes, asking questions about what it was like to be a pilot or a prisoner of war. He never said anything to anyone, indicating he was bothered by the way she looked. Except that morning, when he stood at the kitchen window, watching as she took aim, pitching windfall apples into the woods that fringed his vast, well-cared-for yard, and said, 
If I didn't know differently, I'd think she was a boy. I poured some coffee I didn't want or need into a mug as slowly as I could, and then some milk, and stirred. I waited for that thought and the mood it cast over me to settle without a word. My, my daughter, my child, as I'm supposed to call her, um, is probably the least materialistic person I know, which is not to say she, her room in Philadelphia isn't um, filled to the roof with stuff, but it's mostly stuff that she has found that other people have thrown away and that she makes her art from. Inheritance. After the funeral, I told my daughter she could choose what she wanted from her grandfather's New Hampshire farmhouse. She took the yellowed handkerchiefs with which he wiped his brow when mowing the lawn those 30 summers after his retirement, a leather belt, well-worn but stiff from hanging where he had abandoned it when nothing but suspenders could keep his pants from falling off his ancient hips and the pajama bottoms he had worn for what turned out to be his last eight days and nights. As I watched her fold and pack her small inheritance in a grocery bag, I asked, isn't there something else, thinking of a rug or a piece of furniture? She went directly to the small spice chest that had hung on the wall for 50 years. Opening each of the miniature drawers and peering inside, she said, just this and pulled out a campaign-style button that said, I flew a B-24, which she pinned to her stocking cap as she boarded the train for home. And I will, I will close with one last poem about my father. The title is actually something my father said often. I love women. My father said this to the tall, blonde ophthalmologist who greeted him as he was wheeled into the operating room where she would give him back his vision. He said it to the caretaker who tucked him in at night, although he told me privately that she could stand to lose a few. He said it to the stranger in the parking lot at Shaw's whose head was pulled so far back in her parka hood that she grabbed his arm and pulled him close thinking he was her husband. He even said it to his grown transgender granddaughter, who laughed and took it all in stride. Less than a week before he died, as I leaned across his bed to rearrange the blankets, he hauled his good arm back and swatted me on the ass, a gesture that must have cost what little strength he had. Pop! I said in a voice I hoped would combine the amused surprise and muted moral outrage that had characterized my mother's reply each time he grabbed a handful of her not-so-youthful flesh. What are you doing? He let his head fall back into the pillow's ample lap as a smile suffused his ancient face. Sue, you're looking good, he said. In fact, you're looking great. Thank you. Oh.
thank you. That was it's just such a pleasure to listen to both of you. It's really wonderful reading. Um, and what we usually do um, at this point is the invite our poets to sit up at the table here, and we have a little question and answer session. Um, so if Kathleen would like to move to the front, that'd be great. And um, I need to explain to everybody that we're recording this event as a podcast, just voices only for our website. So um, even though it's a really small room and it seems like we shouldn't need microphones at all, um, if you want to have ask a question or make a comment, if you could raise your hand, um, Lisa will bring you a microphone because we're using the microphones to record, not just for um, volume. Um, oh, we already have a question. Um, I think your description of the environment and the water and the two rowdies, I think it must have been upsetting for you to hear about the dolphin in New York that recently drowned in the polluted waters in the canal. See, these stories happen so many times in the news and every time. And, and the odd, the horrible thing is I teach journalism and so I'm compelled to read the news and watch the news and listen to the news all the time. And a steady diet of this stuff is just absolutely heartbreaking. Um, there is a, a sort of scientific, uh, pheno- well, they have a name for it. It's called the cultivation effect. What happens if you watch the news over a period of time? You tend to change your worldview. You tend to think that people are not nice, that things are, are horrible, and, and it's, it's a real phenomenon. It's something that actually happens to people when they watch too much news. So I'm so relieved in the summer when I don't have to teach because I don't have to read the newspaper. I, you know, I can just kind of like, you know, make those trees grow around me, hide. <laughs> Yes, thank you very much. Uh, If you could write a poem, and this is for both of you, about what was on the news tonight, and there was a lot out there because I watched it, what subject would you pick? That'd be great for the recording. I don't know. I I left for this reading at 3 o'clock. I heard no news tonight. Um, Hmm... I'm drawing a blank. Kathleen, do you, yeah, you go first. This, Rosalind, that's a great question because you know what? I've been trying to write a football poem <laughs> for... There's just some subjects that are so antagonistic to poetry. Writing about business, like accounting. I've not read a good accounting poem yet. And, and I've been trying to write a poem about the ravens because I love the ravens. And this thing about, you know, about how... Um, you know, Ray Lewis was, was, you know, sort of like taking these um, enhancement kinds, really upset me today. I mean, it was like this, well, these, you know, we're getting ready for the, the Super Bowl, and they were saying that Ray Lewis, when he went to get his arm fixed, that he was taking some kind of enhancement, performance-enhancing drugs, and that somehow that kind of taints, you know, the Ravens' performance this Sunday. And I was just irate. I was just, you know, what kind of psychological warfare is this? I was so upset. And so I've been trying to write.
write about that experience of being a football fan. And I have to like sort of the way violence, which is one of the humming things through my whole collection is about violence, a lot of violence. Can't live in Baltimore without writing about violence. It's, it's, it's true. But, but there's something about football that it, it, to me is beautiful and I'm trying to find that, that thread, you know, watching Jacoby Jones run 102 yards, you know, for a touchdown on a kickoff, to me is just like, that is so much poetry, you know, or Anquan Bolden going out for those catches and hanging on to the doggone ball. You know, I just think that is just beautiful. But anyway, that's what I would want to write about. I actually just remembered I have a poem called Super Bowl Sunday. Yay! <laughs> I'd forgotten all about it. Um, but, you know, whenever I am not a, a good poet to deal with public subjects or with politics, it somehow always ends up being personal or coming back to something much more intimate. And that is the case with my <laughs> Super Bowl Sunday. It's just what I do. Thank you both. First of all, I enjoy both of you guys' readings very much. Um, I had um, a question for you about the passing of your mother. Mm -hmm. I wanted to know if it's all right with you. How long after her death did you actually write about her? Like, how long did that process take for you, and how did that really shape your writing? Mm, ultimately? That, that is actually a very good question. It was an unusual time for me. I'm usually someone who waits a couple of years before I write about anything that intense. But um, during, and she was, only, she was ill for less than six months, I actually started writing the poems while I was taking care of her, which is something I've never done. And I wrote three times as many as ended up in the book. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it helped me. It helped me to just, you know, focus on language. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Hi, um, I'm enjoying everything as well. And I wanted to know um, about the air pollution. I think that your first poem, I wanted to know um, when you started writing your, the poem you read, the first poem you read, mm -hmm. your thoughts were so, um, you had thoughts of what happened when you were young. I just wanted to know how long it took you to put it to pen. Oh, gosh. You know, the poems in this collection probably span... 20, maybe 20 years. Yeah. Um, this is, an, it's, you know, I've, I was a single mom, and so I raised these two boys, and I always felt this conflict about my duties and my responsibilities. And so I had all these poems and, like, folders and things, and um, I didn't really set about to do that until my sons graduated from high school. So going back and retrieving, you know, those poems, I had been writing on napkins and mm -hmm. in notebooks and it, it, just stuff all over the place. So um, going Pennsylvania is so much a part of, you know, who I am too. I've lived in three states for a long period of time, Pennsylvania, Maryland, and West Virginia. And, you know, those those 
three states, they're, they're similar in so many ways. And so the poetry I write kind of like finds that commonality and all those people, the people who, you know, live and breathe and do whatever they have to do to survive in those places. I don't know if that answered your question, but yeah. Oh, I actually had, had a question too. I, did, I think because both of you write so much about your lives that I feel like I want to ask a question about um, the narrative of how you came to be a poet. Like, when, how old were you? Do you remember writing your first poet? Could you take turns? Poem to answer? I that? do. Um, well, I didn't get serious until I was in, well into my 20s. Um, I wrote poetry as a child. I did not write poetry in college. I was too busy studying literature, um, which I certainly don't regret. But I spent a really unhappy year after I graduated in a practically unheated farmhouse in Vermont. And that's when I started writing. And, and then when I was approaching, I mean, it seems ridiculous now, but when I was approaching my 30th birthday, I thought, it's almost over. When am I going to get serious? And, and that was when I actually quit my job and started devoting a part of each day to writing and started freelancing so I could accommodate that. Gosh, that's so noble. <laughs> I, my first poem was when I was 12, and it was written for a boy. And the boy was this handsome, very bad boy that I was so in love with that I couldn't even think straight. So I wanted to get his attention because he wasn't, you know, he just had girls around him all the time. So I wrote this poem from as kind of a sexy thing, and I snuck it to him. He wore a leather jacket and everything. I mean, you know, honestly. So I snuck the poem to him one day, you know, and he read it. He actually read it, and as soon as he read it, he looked at me. He looked at me in a way that, you know, really saw me, and I was stunned, and I thought, poetry is really powerful. And I decided from then on that, you know, I was going to do this thing. But there is, like, I don't know, so not so noble. No, so boring. Yes, and I ended up going behind the bleachers to kiss him, and he tasted like chocolate, and it really disappointed me. (laughs) I don't know why. It just really did. It really disappointed me. It tasted like chocolate. (laughs) I know. It was just. I don't know what it was about the chocolate. It was wasn't what I was expecting. I guess maybe. That's so noble. Well, then, for the recording, we have an American Sign Language interpreter here, and she just embodies what I got from the poems. Both of our poets have just described their lives and then used imagery that we'd have understood their lives without the preludes. And the audience on the podcast should know that Kathleen said that it was really icky, and I would like to see icky in sign language again. <laughs> you take your fingers, fold them into your palms, and then splay them out towards the audience. That, that was great. And this is what I keep trying to do. 
Um, hints, please. I feel like I have to describe everything from A to Z to get that imagery. And yet, as I say, without the life stories, I'd have gotten all of it. Mm-hmm. Hints for how to do so. Write and rewrite. Revision helps. Revision, revision, revision. Uh-huh. Less is more. And I know a transgender woman who was just hired uh, that I wrote about on Facebook uh, uh, that I was thinking of doing a poem about. So thank you very much. You use the expression transgendered, and I hear it all the time, and I really don't know what it means. Mm -hmm. Could you describe, define it? Thank you. Yeah, a lot of people don't know what it means. It's really an umbrella term um, used to describe anyone whose birth gender doesn't match their gender identity. And to whatever extent, it doesn't necessarily mean a transsexual, someone who's had sex reassignment surgery. It just means someone who sees gender as a continuum rather than two separate camps, two separate groups. No, no, that's a hermaphrodite. That's a totally different thing. This is strictly gender identity, which is in your head. So I could be a woman and think I'm a man. Yes, yes. More than think. Believe. Yeah, feel that. Feel that way. I mean, I you know I noticed when she was um, two. You know, she gravitated toward boys' toys, boys' clothes, everything, pretty much early on. But it's, it has nothing to do with physiology. Um, it's been very difficult. I, I just thought she was gay until she was, you know, in her 20s. And then it seemed to be going beyond that, just in terms of her dress and personal appearance and whatnot. And uh, she finally, you know, I finally sort of confronted her about it, and she wrote me this big, long letter. It was extremely difficult. I didn't really know what the word meant either. She had to educate me. So it hasn't been easy, but she's still the same person. You know? Well, you you know, it doesn't, the question is, is she gay? Her partner is female. Yeah. But not all transgender people go for what in her head is the opposite sex. <laughs> you know, you can be gay and transgender. Yes. Oh, sorry. I would like to offer uh, my mother and grandmother's advice uh, when such things were unknown. <laughs> I would like to... Uh, for my mother and grandmother's advice, uh, my mother's gone six and a half years, and one of the last two times I saw her in 2006, I asked her about something, and she said, you go to the library all the time, look it up. There are excellent selections here in the library dealing with uh, transgender issues, and Baltimore is uh, a very good place to catch up on uh, Subjects such as this, because we've pioneered a lot of things for the gay population of America. I know, but I wanted to hear it from somebody who had right. a mm-hmm. family experience. Well, the people that were interviewed in these books would be uh, 
and written about will be good sources also. And there's the Internet nowadays, which is exactly where I went. Oh, oh we have one more question. Maybe one more question, and maybe we'll, then we'll close. Um, I wanted to know, I know you said you moved here when you were five, mm -hmm. um, but does any part of you, like how do you reconcile your, where you were born with where you are now? And can you speak more than one language? I do speak some Japanese, but it's, it's like, um, it's arrested development. It's like five-year-old Japanese. Oh, okay. I can ask for candy. You know, where's the bathroom? Things like that. I mean, it's very basic functional things that a five-year-old. And, and, and the reason being is that when we came to this country, my father, who's, my mother's Japanese, just all Japanese, and my father is, is French and Austrian and English and Irish. He's all mixed up. And when we came to this country, he was, it was right, it was after World War II. And World War II is one of those wars that people just will not forget. You know, it's, it has it has left its legacy with folks, and um, my father was very concerned that we would not bring anything Japanese into this American home. So he, he asked us not to speak the language. Well, not asked. He he said, "You will not speak Japanese. Only English in this house." And all my mother's things he put away in in the cedar chest. All her kimonos and all the stuff that you know was Japanese because we were supposed to be. Um, Americans now, and my mother went after that with vengeance. My mother became Marilyn Monroe. She like put a little beauty mark on. She wore wigs all the time. I mean, she just, I mean, she listened to what he said. So, um, how do I reconcile? I, it, it was a struggle during adolescence because I didn't look like any of my friends. All my friends were blonde and blue eyed, and, you know, they had um, normal families. and. You know, I never knew. When I came home from school, I never knew what my mother was going to have for supper. You know, she would be eating fish heads. And I couldn't tell my friends, you know, what did you have for dinner last night? Oh, um, fish heads? You know, and no, you don't, you don't do that. And then my mother had this habit. She, because the Japanese have communal baths. When we were little kids, we used to bathe with my mother. We'd all get in the same bathtub, you know. And I remember one time finding out from my friends by mis sort of by accident, like when I took a bath, my mother shampooed my hair in the bath, and they were saying, "You took a bath with your mother," and it was like this. Oh, I said it. I let it out. Now they know that I'm this weird, strange, dysfunctional person. But it was stuff like that. It was in adolescence where it peaked, really. So, do you ever write about your like multicultural? Background. Yes, I do have a chapbook. It's called The Girl Who Loved Mothra. <laughs> and it's about, it's about that search to reclaim. Because, see, also when I was growing up, everything Japanese was cheap. And, and you know, people made fun of, like, the little transistor radios. And, and it didn't help when we had Mothra and Godzilla. Because I'd go to the movies with my friends. And here was this, like, ticky-tacky monster. You could see the strings you know, kind of pulling this thing, and I would like sink down, you know, oh no, because it was a Japanese film, and you know how the people, they would talk, and then, then you'd hear the sound, you know, it was like, it was terrible for me, but I had to embrace that, you know, I had to learn to love that, even in all its tackiness, you know, that is a part of me, I, 
it, it came to a head one time with my mother. I, I found out about this operation you could do. The Japanese people have this, this puffy skin here called the epicanthic fold. And it's a genetic sort of adaptation to cold weather because my people, you know, those people came from really cold Arctic climates. And so we developed this fatty tissue here. And I found out as an adolescent that there was an operation you could do where you could remove that and your eyes could look like Western girls' eyes. And I remember the day I came home so excited. Mom, Mom, there's this operation I can get. She smacked me. And she said, you are a samurai. And the, the look on her eye, you know, just that whole, she, she would have killed me if I would have done something like that. It was so disgraceful and dishonoring her to do something like that to myself. But it, it got rough. I think we all agree that Thank you. I love Mothra too. I really like Rodan. Rodan, yeah, Godzilla. Thank you. M O T H R A. Oh, are we ever? Do we have time for another question? Oh, um, how about one? What would do you want to? Um, did you want to do some closing poems, or shall we just end with Q and A? Q and A. That's fine. Okay, then. Yeah, let's go on then. That's fine. Well, till eight anyway. We, I mean, until five hours maybe. <laughs> there is a poem that I've been searching for for a long time, and I tried like heck to find it after I met you at the uh, Homewood Quakers Meeting House. Oh, right. And mm -hmm. I did find that book of uh, that you know of, of the Hiroshima survivors. Mm -hmm. It's on my bookshelf now and won't go away. But this poem had to deal with falling in love with a woman, and it was by a man who was stationed either in Okinawa, the Philippines, or Japan itself, mm -hmm. and he fell deeply in love, falling into the epicanthic fold mm -hmm. of her mm -hmm. eyes. And it just rocked me. My best friend with the smart kids in grade school, Catholic, was Maria Thompson, Chinese Filipino. And then we had uh, oh, uh, the Whitmans. I believe one of the Whitmans was a uh, secretary of agriculture here in Baltimore. And people would not tell them they were Chinese. They say, you look American. Mm -hmm. And that was yeah. the ultimate compliment. Yet you ate fish head soup. <laughs> I love it. Mm -hmm. um. <laughs> okay, question. Could have closing poems. Well, okay. No, no, go ahead. Have a, I mean, I'm. we're kind of being very flexible here. Yeah, we can um, maybe take one more question. And I don't know if um, what the poets want to do. I just wanted to ask no, Sue no. about her poem about entitled Happiness, were they, was, was that about uh, friends of yours? And I'm sure it was. I have three one. poems actually with oh. the same title. Which one was well, it? Well, this was the one um, where you that. talked about the three of you holding your babies. Yes, and, right, um, right. And capturing and, that moment. Right. I, I can remember being told by a woman I worked with, um, I was probably 24, 25, and she was in her 40s which seemed really old. And she told me that when your children are young, you know, whenever that is, late 20s, early 30s, 
uh, when your children are young, that is the best time of your life. And then when it happened to me and I had a child, I thought my life was over. I couldn't do anything. I thought I'd never write again. I couldn't do anything alone. I was never alone for a second. And then, you know, 20 years go by and you look back on it and that was the best time of my life. And so that's what I was looking back on. And I was remembering one day in particular, sitting with two friends who had babies the same age. Okay, well, um, we're trying to be very uh, casual and spontaneous here, so we'd, we're trying to feel free to depart from the structure, but if, if the poets would like to read closing poems, now maybe if people still have questions or you know just want to chat, I think there will still be a little time afterwards. Is that good um, with you, to, with the poets? Um, so, um, and you can read from there, or if you want to come back over here, that's... Oh, can I get you... Uh, I would read that happiness poem if I could remember which one it was, but there are so many with the same title. <laughs> Actually, I think there are only three. Do you want to go first? No, because I haven't found it yet. I see two here named happiness. Well, actually, this isn't that happiness poem. This is another happiness poem. But while we're on the subject, happiness. When we were young, it came to us unbidden, slipping its weightless arm around our shoulders, urging us toward the light that shimmered all around. Remember the paneled bedroom of our first apartment? We'd just come from the beach, my day-glow orange bikini radiating still a kind of heat. You spread me on a mattress thinly buttered by a sheet, and when I rose again, it wasn't with the weight of flesh, but like the gauzy curtain billowed by the wind, through which we glimpsed the mower's progress through the tresses of the next-door neighbor's lawn. In middle age, it has a heft to it and something chilly at the margins, like a good fur coat whose satin lining shoots a warning down the sleeve. Each time I feel its husk begin to stir in me, I think of how the sun in just a few years turned that flimsy drape to dust. That's why people cry at weddings, isn't it? because the happy couple's happiness is something we have all been lofted by, just as we've seen the mower intent upon his work. I think I'm going to read uh, Ghost Walk. Did any of you ever go to do the Ghost Walk at Fells Point? You pay $12 and they take you for a walk and you get to see all the places where, you know, um, the... Edgar Allan Poe, the sort of haunts, the sort of famous ghosts of Baltimore on this walk. And I had gone one time, and and, uh, I just couldn't resist writing this poem, Ghost Walk. Tide point in the bay, the ducks aloft, gliding in the shimmer. A mother and her chicks, 
A wind picks up slightly as the water taxi launches its last blow, one long leaving. Ports in Little Italy, the fort. Lighter than the wind, the ghosts cavort. Captains, Shanghai boys, sweethearts in their corsets or tattooed like these young lovers kissing in the shadows at the pier, holding on to phantoms of each other drunk on beer. Visitors to open air, to streetlights quickening along the planks. Witnesses to tall ships, tankers, houseboats in the slip. A world on the verge of some distress. A woman, for example, on the tipsy edge, leaves the bar, casts off on cobbled streets. Inside herself, the compass. Did he mean it when he said he'd take her in the dinghy? If she had to, could she swim? One foot out, the other, out where night is anchored, short, long, short, long, out where night is vast and heaving. No, no, that's okay. I just want to thank both of you, Kathleen and Sue Allen. I'm, it was a beautiful evening. We all came, bad weather, probably many things in our lives, but, you know, what I think, what you gave us tonight, and what I feel, I had a crazy day, family crises, you know, bad weather, that, and I feel that, you know, it really gave, it showed, it's what poetry does. You know, it showed us the humor, the beauty, and the love that is in our lives, and really what makes it all the other stuff bearable. And then that, that's what your poetry did. I know for me, and I'm sure it did it for everybody else here tonight. I, and I thank you both so much for the gift of your poetry to the Pratt Library. Thank you.